The first step in building a house, car, bridge, or tunnel is to make a sketch of what you want. Next, refine that to a blueprint or model made to scale, which will be used to actually guide the construction of what you want. If the blueprint is incorrect, this will be reflected in the end product. This is similar to baking and cooking. The recipe is the guide to the end product and we need to follow the sequence, time, temperature, in order to obtain the end product. In our behavior, that is, in creating our experience, we are operating on the basis of our assumptions, a little like blueprints and models. If you are enjoying your life, that would suggest that the assumptions you have been using are serving you very well. If you are doing unhappiness, bitterness, worry, anger, resentment, etc., that would suggest that your assumptions are bearing bitter fruit and maybe time for a change. I would like to share a perfect example that will illustrate what I'm getting at. In my early 60s, I had fluid in my ear. My internist first assumed it was an infection, so he prescribed some antibiotics which had no effect, except perhaps to decimate some of my useful flora. Faced with that non-result, he said I likely had serum otitis. He explained that the lower end of the eustachian tube connecting my eardrum to my throat had a valve that was not functioning correctly. The result was a partial vacuum that gradually filled with serum from the blood and pressed against the eardrum, reducing its ability to resonate, thus reducing my ability to hear. His recommendation was to refer me to an ENT physician and get a tube installed. Off to the ENT doc. That resulted in the following. First, a shot in the ear, which was momentarily very painful. Next, a scalpel cut to the eardrum, suctioning out the serum inserting a small tube. My next question was, is this a permanent solution? He indicated that in six to 10 months, the tube would be forced out and the eustachian tube would refill and I would need to go through the same procedure. I asked if surgery would repair the valve and he said that he would not recommend it since there was a low probability of success. I also inquired if he had any patients that it recovered from this process, and he said, none. Over the next several years, I had about a dozen similar procedures and fully expected to continue this routine as long as I lived. Then there was serendipity. I changed my insurance to an HMO and needed to go to another EMT specialist when my eustachian tube had filled again. He did the same procedures and said that he would see me in a few months when my tube fell out and I ended up with the serum onitis again. On my next visit, he said that he wanted me to try something and asked me to take a sip of water and as I swallowed to hold my nose and try to clear as if I had just debarked from an airplane. Lo and behold, it worked. The fluid in my eustachian tube drained immediately. He went on to say that if I cleared in that manner once or twice a day, I would never need another tube. I mentioned that my previous ENT had talked about a valve, 
and things would never change. His response was that there was no valve. It was simply a matter of the throat end of my eustachian station tube had partially collapsed and my daily cleaning would take care of it. I thought of hugging him because of the delight I was doing when I envisioned a future without the time, pain, and cost of unending procedures. A different set of assumptions with immediate positive risk benefits. I have not needed EMT visits for the last dozen years. A change that was quick, easy, simple, enjoyable, and very beneficial. All due to a change in thinking and assumptions. I am suggesting that our interpretive framework, decoder, mindset, or map of reality is based on the assumption that we are the doey, not the doer, in our emotional behavior. As I wrote before, this is a leftover from our childhood when we were operated by giants in our environment and we had no choice. Now as adults we are stuck with choice, no choice about that. And we use our choice robotically to play the part of the victim, as in somebody else made me mad or glad, not that we chose the experience. This unaware choosing of our behavior is not the result of stupidity, but rather an automatic choice like folding our hands or putting the same leg into the slacks the same way that we did when we were children. Operating from the mindset implicit in the sentence, Due to circumstances beyond my control, I have been left in charge of me. We can change our mind, thoughts, quickly and easily. Revisiting some of the examples of implementation, we can see the beneficial results of a very different assumption, that of ownership. Bill Jr. had thought that his father made him angry by telling him what to do. In the middle of that thought, he chose a different thought, that his father was not in control of his thinking and emotions. Bingo! The result was operating himself from the driver's seat instead of the back seat with his father driving. When the problem was out there, his father, then the solution was out there as well, and he would have to wait until the father changed. Realizing his responsibility, responsibility for his choice to do upset he could easily and quickly change his emotions. Ruth thought that she had to overcome her nail-biting when all she had to do was nothing. Bert thought he had to gain control of his temper when all he had to do was interrupt his build-up with the thought of the priest or of the Marcia cartoon. Ralph had typically thought that something like a soda spilled in his car made him furious and the thought of using his freedom differently resulted in a tectonic shift in his behavior and his feelings. Ellen thought she had no control over her reactions to any hint of abandonment, and when she thought about her shoe, she brought herself into the adult now. Sue thought her daughter's request for water was an imposition until she used her freedom in a more positive manner and thought about smiling. Joe thought that he couldn't stop smoking unless his wife stopped also. When he explored lighting up with a $5 bill, he ventured face to face with the thought that he was in control 
and was stuck with the choice. Sally thought she had no control over her worry since her mother was her model. When she thought about offloading the job of worrying to her friend, she thought of smiling since it seemed so ridiculous. Thus, she replaced worry thoughts with smiling thoughts. So what do you think? What are your thoughts about this BS that you've been hearing? Remember that I suggested we did not have thoughts as infants, that we gradually created a mind, a mind of our own that we own. And I suggested that our thoughts are a combination of video, audio, and filio. Further, that we only sample the external world and then construct an internal reality that we assume matches the outside world. If the external world drove the internal world, every person would have the same picture, and we know that there is too much variety for that. One of the Eastern gurus made an interesting analogy. He asked people to go back to their youth and imagine lying on their back in the summertime watching bead-white fluffy clouds. As we look, we can imagine that some of the clouds look like an animal or a profile of a person. Think about the attitude or how we regard the ever-changing show. We seem to be interested observers or curious witnesses. However, we are not invested in keeping the image or getting rid of something that looks like the head of a wolf. We know and accept that the canvas will keep shifting. Then he asks the question, what if thoughts were like clouds in the sky of our mind, constantly shifting and changing, and we are not focused or trying to control, but rather doing curiosity as we observe? There is a huge difference in the following two positions. Thoughts and emotions are running my life, or I am in charge of my thoughts and I can change my thoughts and feelings quickly and easily, like changing the TV channel. Anne was focused on her husband's infidelity and stated that she couldn't stop thinking about it. Of course, she was right. Result, no change. Ellen had an early traumatic experience color her adult relationships. She could not get rid of her history. However, she could neutralize that memory in the now by thinking of her present-day shoes. George and his wife utilized thinking about some of this BS in a way that they could go on, not because they would forget and be casual. There was still the tragedy of their daughter's death. However, they were not going to make it a further tragedy out of their lives. Nell did an amazing job of reducing the impact of her rape on her well-being. She used her awareness of being in control of her thoughts and feelings to minimize what could have been years of suffering and a social and sexual withdrawal. Sometimes students and clients will accuse me of saying the environment doesn't matter, that the mind is all. I have never implied that the world outside our skin is of no consequence, although you may have inferred that. In a classroom, I will go to the board and write, the E is very important, even underlining very. During our infancy and toddlerhood, the E is crucial to our survival. In addition, 
Since we have not yet developed our mind, we are not doing much in the way of thinking or thoughts. As we go about the business of constructing our minds, we develop a sort of map of reality that is our internal representation of what is going on inside and out. We create the mindsets that I pointed out in the second paragraph in the comments about the homeless man finding a considerable amount of money, and you probably took a position of fool or hero with very little information. In a sense, we form blueprints or a model for our adult life. And I would like to remind you of the importance of presets, models, or blueprints, as illustrated in my discussion of my ear. I am proposing that one of the fundamental building blocks of our early mental development is that we are at the effect of the environment, especially the giants called parents or caretakers, and later other people. We are not in charge of ourselves. Others make us mad or they make us glad. In a way, this is similar to my dealing with fluid in my eustachian tube. I needed outside help or intervention when the assumption was a faulty valve. I was not in charge. What a wonderful outcome when a different model or preset resulted in my being able to clear without help, sort of a flip to my being in charge of me, which led to a quick and easy change. As an adult, if you have been left in charge of you, you would be choosing what you thought and what you felt about the E. Imagine the benefits. If you choose upset, you could change your mind immediately and easily without having to wait for others to change first. Like Bill suddenly testing the idea that his father was not making him mad, only inviting him to feel like a child being lectured. Ralph dissolved the rage that he had initially chosen and replaced it with appreciation and relief that he was not at the effect of a spilled soda in his pristine car. He continued his positive approach during the cleanup process when he normally would have been cursing and throwing things. Now, back to the statement that E is very important. I would return to the board and place a number two in front of that statement. Next, I would put a number one above it and write the following sentence. Your thoughts about the E are more important because what you are experiencing is your thoughts about the E, not the E. If the E were in charge, everybody would experience the same thought and feeling instead of the variety among people that we see. Consider this an invitation to spend a few days playing around with these ideas. Use your imagination to pretend that you are in charge of your feelings, that you are doing the choosing, in contrast to the typical norm or pretense that others make you feel one way or the other. Remember, the self-sentencing. If you can say you can't imagine, you will be right. However, if you test drive this very different model, you might end up doing delight. The words imagination and pretense probably sound pretty whimsical to you if you have absorbed the dominant cultural norms of our puritanically derived heritage and operate yourself pretending that other people make you feel what you feel. Most people likely would be like Bert, who was trying hard to control his temper when other people set him off, instead of simply interrupting. 
As I mentioned before, you can't get out of a hole by digging it deeper. Also, you can't get out of seriousness by doing more seriousness. My suggestion is to put down the shovel, lighten up, and play with the following idea. First, do something to remind yourself that you are in charge and that you can change what you do robotically. For example, if you are wearing a watch or a bracelet, switch it to the other wrist for a period of four or five days. This is a simple switch that you can do even if you have been placing it on your left wrist daily for many years. You are likely to find it awkward, but not hard, which is always a good sign of change, similar to when you are learning a new dance step. You may do startle and not be startled, as if you are not in charge. When you looked at the left wrist automatically for the time and find the watch is missing, another good sign that you are getting familiar with your roboticism. At this point, you may be saying that you don't wear a watch, and I suggest you either borrow one or retrieve one that you formerly wore. If you want to substitute some other daily activity that will give you a chance to experience your automaticity, awkwardness, and ease of change, that is great. Remember to play with this. Don't do seriousness. During these few days of exploration, pretend the following, that you have chosen impatience when you are put on hold in a telephone call. When you start to do upset about another driver, pretend that you chose that reaction. When a clerk or a waiter is inattentive or snippy, pretend that you chose your reaction, in contrast to your usual way of pretending that the other person pissed you off. If a co-worker is abrupt with his or her dealings with you, pretend that you chose your hurt or anger, not the co-worker. Also, on the positive side, if a co-worker says something humorous and you laugh, pretend that you chose to laugh, that he or she did not make you laugh. If you do this little bit of oddball behavior, you may feel a little silly at times. Pretend that you chose to feel silly. Maybe a little worried, you chose that too. That you are not facing the real reality, that is the norm. What you may discover or make up is that you are creating a lighter version of your own life, realizing the benefits of utilizing your internal sovereignty in a delightful way. Delightful because by pretending or assuming that you are the operator, you can minimize any time on the burner and maximize your time on the velour. In video, audio, and filio terms, when you feel the heat or hear and feel the rumble strip, you can simply and easily smile and steer into smooth. I want to state again that others are sovereign as well, so you cannot make them laugh or mad. They will choose, so you needn't worry about that. In addition, you cannot convince anybody else, nor can you teach, motivate, or influence them. It will always be their choice, not yours. In this BS version, the chain of command is one. You are at the wheel of your vehicle. Worrying about other people's choice to blame you for their upset is a burner you don't need to spend much time on. It will be a relief to skip doing guilt about others' attribution of your being the cause of their distress, since they chose it. This does not mean that you will be indifferent to others. 
Since you are more effectively selfish, you will be more gracious and a better listener, as well as treating them with respect. It would seem that when we are not treating ourselves well, that is the time when we are more likely to be short with others. Although you already know what I am going to remind you of, I would wager that you have not thought about what follows for a long time. What I want to point out is that after becoming an adult, you have chosen every single step you have taken as you moved around. You have been in charge of the bites of food you have taken in. You have decided how many times to chew your food once you have placed it in your mouth. You have chosen what clothing you have purchased. You are wearing what you chose earlier today, right down to the shoes on your feet. When you drive, you make a thousand decisions, choosing to lighten or press on the accelerator, give the steering wheel a little adjustment, etc., mostly in automatic pilot mode, outside of your awareness. You have chosen what you say, not only to other people, but to yourself also, as in thinking and self-reflection. Lots and lots of choosing. When I reflect back on my smoking behavior, I chose every single cigarette I lit up while pretending I couldn't stop. I'm glad I changed my mind and kept the change. Why did I go through this list of everyday activities that we take for granted? I wanted to point out the contrast between what we started with, a helpless and totally dependent infant, and the adult who has developed and mastered all these behaviors. How can we logically think that our emotional behavior is exempt from that ownership? As I stated earlier, I think that is a leftover from our early years of dependency and lack of role models regarding emotional ownership. Operating ourselves from the position that others are responsible for our emotions is simply a norm that leads to victimology. Speaking of norms, the new norm, majority, regarding weight is obesity. I was a member from time to time until I changed my mind. Now I am in the minority. I hope you change your mind about emotional ownership through pretending you are in charge. If you happen to be in the majority of playing life from the position of being an emotional pawn.